Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past. My name is Andy Davis. The purpose of these podcasts is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and mission by learning the stories of our heroic brothers and sisters from the past. Now today we're going to talk about a hero, one of the greatest preachers of the early church, John of Antioch. Antioch is in modern-day Turkey, right near the Syrian border at the extreme northeastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. John of Antioch, however, is a name very few of us would know. His nickname is much more famous, John Chrysostom, or John the Golden Mouth. John Chrysostom's powerful sermons were life-changing for all those who heard him, and his eloquence and skill at holding a crowd enraptured for as long as two hours led to that nickname after he was dead, the man with the golden mouth. Ironically, as we will find out, it was his mouth that also got him into trouble since it reflected his fiery zeal for personal holiness as he understood it. For he was a stern ascetic that went in for extreme harsh treatment of the body. And he often preached against the immorality and the luxury that he saw in the powerful men and women of the Eastern Roman Empire. And that uncompromising approach won him some very powerful enemies. As we look at a preacher from the past, I think about the phrase, the foolishness of preaching. Some of you might say, of course, you're celebrating a great preacher because you're a preacher. So how important is preaching, really? Paul speaks of the foolishness of preaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 in the King James Version. But actually, most translations go with the foolishness of what was preached rather than the foolishness of preaching itself. The foolishness of Christ and Him crucified. But preaching itself actually does seem foolish to many people, as though you wonder, does it really make any difference at all in the world? We are an intensely practical people. We esteem deeds over words, great inventions, scientific discoveries, military triumphs, bold advances. But words are extremely powerful. The pen is mightier than the sword, so the old saying goes. Or as Napoleon said, there are only two powers in the world, saber and mind. And in the end, the saber is always defeated by the mind. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Powerful orators who are able to move the masses to united action have actually shaped world history for good or ill. Think of the powerful political leaders of the 20th century who conquered or mobilized mighty nation-states with their fiery speeches. So God has ordained that the Word of God would hold the power of eternal life and death for those that hear it with faith. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Now, a sermon itself is a moment in time that's difficult to recapture. A powerful sermon is an almost indescribable moment in time that's, that we really have a hard time 
recapturing when you just read the words of the sermon. It is a spiritual thing. It's a, it's a combination of light and heat. Light being the truth, biblical truth that's unfolded, and heat being the passion and skill of the delivery. We have the texts of over 600 of John Chrysostom's sermons, but we don't have the ability to transport ourselves across the centuries to stand with his congregations and hear him. And we would have been standing back then, and he, John Chrysostom the preacher, would have been seated in order to preach. That's how they did it in the East. Nor do we have the understanding of his culture, or the setting, or the nuances of his language. So the preaching moment is very difficult to recapture. The text, the words that the preachers speak, the words that John Chrysostom spoke, are like the wood and the dead animal and the altar when Elijah took on the prophets of Baal at Carmel. All the physical stuff is there, but the fire descends from heaven to ignite it in the minds and hearts of the people. This is the unction, the anointing of the Holy Spirit and gifted preachers, the anointing by the Holy Spirit. It says in 1 John 2.20, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you knows the truth. The fire from heaven is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the anointing of the Spirit, both on the preacher and the people, that makes it a transcendent, life-shaping, life-changing moment. It's a supernatural thing, going beyond the mere words. But the words are an excellent starting point. And we will talk today about the amazing words of this amazing preacher, John Chrysostom. One man said, preaching, preaching is truth through personality. But I also think it's truth set in context, the context of the man and the moment in history. So let's give a brief overview of John Chrysostom's life. The first context for us is the imperial church. Now, those of you that have heard uh, the church history podcast in the past, you'll know what I mean by the imperial church. The Roman persecution that characterized the first three centuries of the gospel advance from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, uh, it ended with the conversion of the Emperor Constantine and the Edict of Milan in the year 313. It ended the years of imperial persecution of Christianity by, by Rome. What followed was what some scholars call the imperial church. And it was a blending of the power of the Roman Empire with the Christian church. Now, as we saw last time in our study of Athanasius, this combination of the power of the emperor with the Christian church was, was often a hindrance to the true work of the gospel. Athanasius endured five exiles as various emperors gained political control and would exert political power over the bishops and the leaders of the church. There's an unholy connection of political power and theology, the leadership of the church. Now, we will see the same kind of dynamic happening in John Chrysostom's life as he made many enemies and politics often rushed into his life. So that's context number one, the imperial church. Context number two is monasticism. After the persecution by the Roman Empire officially ended, it became beneficial to one's life to claim to be a Christian. It was an ad advantage. Since the emperor was a Christian, to be a pagan was actually harmful to your standing in the imperial court. Well, this obviously caused many false motives and false conversions. It caused the bigger threat to the uh, church to be worldliness, 
power, luxuries, money, etc. Many people sought the salvation of their souls by moving away from all that, away from the temptations of the world, to move out into the desert to live the solitary life of a monk. They practiced asceticism, which is the harsh treatment of the body for the salvation of the soul. They renounced fine clothing. They renounced delicious foods. They renounced comfortable dwelling places as worldly temptations. They fasted a lot. They wore garments covered in camel's hair. They spent long hours praying. John Chrysostom was this kind of a man. He was effectively a monk. He was an ascetic at heart. And it strongly affected his preaching as well as his life as a bishop in the court at Constantinople, the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. Context number three, Antioch versus Alexandria, two schools of biblical interpretation. Antioch and Alexandria were important cities in the Eastern uh, world at that time, the Eastern Mediterranean world. Um, Central to John Chrysostom's lasting contribution in church history was his commitment to biblical preaching, to sound biblical exegesis. At that time, as I've said, there were two main schools of biblical interpretation, one based in Alexandria, Egypt, and the other based in Antioch in modern-day Turkey. The Alexandrian school was dominated by the allegorical method of biblical interpretation, and the greatest allegorist of the early church was a man named Origen, who died about a century before John Chrysostom was born. Allegory uses the words of Scripture as merely a base from which to launch into spiritualized symbolism. For example, Origen read the list of place names in Numbers 33, where it recounts the places that Israel traveled in the desert from Egypt to Sukkoth. Origen read those as symbolic of the soul's progress in salvation from sin to holiness. The basic concept of allegory is that the highest meanings of the text can only be discerned by the most spiritual people. There really are no rules to interpretation that normal people can follow. In other words, if you are holy enough, you'd be able to see what I see in the text. If you don't see it, it means you're not really very holy. Now, by contrast, the school at Antioch used a grammatical historical approach to the text. They tried to understand the words of Scripture in their normal, literal sense and to set it in the unfolding history of the world and of the Bible. This is the approach I also use in my preaching, the grammatical historical approach of interpretation. John Chrysostom was that kind of a preacher, so his homilies, his sermons, are still of benefit centuries later. He is the greatest biblical expositor of the Greek church, the Eastern church, a man who combined spotless holiness with passionate biblical preaching. So these are the three contexts, the imperial church and monasticism and literal or grammatical historical versus allegorical interpretation. Now let's talk about John Chrysostom's life. He was born in Antioch, uh, modern day Turkey, in the year uh, AD 347. His father was a distinguished military officer who died when John was an infant. His mother's name was Anthusa. And she was a truly rare Christian woman, one of the great mothers in church history. Though she was relatively young when her husband died and would have had many opportunities to remarry, she dedicated herself to Christ and to the raising of her two children, John and his older sister. 
She was a conspicuously godly woman, and she poured the gospel into John from infancy. She gave John an excellent classical education, but protected him from the allure of paganism. John received his classical education from a renowned pagan instructor named Labanius, who was an excellent orator and rhetorician. Though he had many students learning rhetoric uh, from him, he identified John as his greatest pupil, his most gifted pupil. When Libanius was asked shortly before his death in the year 393 who he would choose to be his successor, he said, John, if only the Christians had not stolen him from us. After John had completed his training in oration and rhetoric, he began his career as a lawyer, which positioned him for a prosperous career in the politics of the empire. But God had other plans. John soon became disgusted with the secular world of power and prestige, and he intensified his study of the scriptures, begun in his childhood with his godly mother. Now John began to study under the bishop Miletius. At the age of 20, John brought joy to his mother by deciding to become baptized. He enrolled in the church's class for catechumens in preparation for his baptism. Now, back then, people tended to postpone baptism because they believed it wiped out all of the sins that led up to that point. They wanted to kind of wait as long as possible. came from a kind of a fundamentally faulty understanding of, of uh, baptismal regeneration, but they tended to postpone baptism back then. So at age 20, John uh, decided to train for baptism. After the three-year class, John was baptized by Miletius when he was uh, 23 years old, around the year 370. His baptism radically changed his life. From that point on, he never again swore or slandered anyone or even tolerated off-color jokes in his presence. He was completely sold out to follow Christ. The change in him was radical and permanent. The bishop, Miletius, wanted him to serve formally in the church there at Antioch and gave him some roles, especially as a lector, which is a public reader of scripture. But John wanted more. He wanted to become a monk. He wanted to escape the temptations of this corrupt world. He wanted to go out into the desert and immerse himself in fasting and prayer. But when he told his mother, she wept openly before him and begged him not to do this, not to leave her alone. She said, my son, my only comfort in the miseries of this earthly life is to see you every day and to see in your features the face of my beloved deceased husband. Please do not make me a widow a second time. These words were effective, but John just diverted his intention. He turned their home into a little monastery. He secluded himself from the world and practiced strict asceticism. He ate only the plainest food and very little of it. He slept on the bare floor and frequently rose in the middle of the night to pray. He seldom spoke so that he would not relapse into his old habit of slandering other people. When his mother died, he joined the monks living in the Syrian mountains and spent four years learning the rigors of the monastic life. Then he spent an additional two years practicing that life in complete solitude. Later, he would admit that his intense fasting did permanent damage to his already small frame and to his health, and that this kind of seclusion actually makes it hard later to pastor a flock of ordinary people. So he would not recommend this. 
He intensified his study of the Word of God. His chief mentor in the Bible was Diodorus, effectively the founder of the Antiochian school of theology that I mentioned before. John took a vow of celibacy and wrote a powerfully convicting letter to a friend, Theodore, who wanted to leave the monastic life and marry a young woman named Hermione. John's letter to Theodore was sharply worded, saying that to break their vow is to fall into sin and into the devil's trap. After his six years of monastic seclusion, he returned to Antioch and began preaching regularly, and soon his fame as a preacher was widespread throughout the Greek-speaking church. Around this time, there were some opportunities to serve as bishop in various locations. John did not want to take up any of these posts, and he actually avoided being elected by a fraud and a deception. He and his friend Basil had agreed that they should either agree together to become bishops or refuse together. They would stick together. He then surreptitiously put Basil's name into the authorities for election while keeping his own name out and then misled Basil that he had uh, chosen to become a bishop, that he himself, John, had chosen to become a bishop. Basil then duped that John had agreed, reluctantly accepted his own election as a bishop. John openly delighted in his cleverness in avoiding election as a bishop, and he actually defended this kind of, of fraudulent behavior, but it's quite suspect. At any rate, he could not avoid being elected as a bishop forever. At that time, he wrote his famous book, On the Priesthood, written somewhere between the years 375 and 386. We don't know exactly when. He elevates the role of a priest, what we would call a pastor, above all other offices, requiring wholehearted consecration to Christ and to the flock. In the year 397, the bishopric of Constantinople became vacant. This obviously was one of the most influential churches in the entire Christian world because that was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. The emperor ordered that John be taken from Antioch to Constantinople to serve as bishop there. But he was so popular in Antioch that the authorities feared a riot when their golden-mouthed preacher would be taken away from them. So they kept the emperor's decree a secret. They invited John to visit a small chapel in the outskirts of the city, and when he was there, they ordered him into a carriage, and he was forcibly taken to Constantinople to serve at his new post. It's a little ironic that he ended up coming to Constantinople by fraud and by being duped as well. So it's, it's kind of uh, perhaps some providential payback for what he did to his friend. At any rate, though it was done against his will, John felt the whole thing was providentially ordained by God, and he chose not to oppose it, chose not to fight it. He was ordained as a bishop of Constantinople, as the bishop, sorry, of Constantinople in the year 398. Constantinople was a wealthy, powerful town, the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. It was a city given to overt luxury, to worldly entertainments, to political intrigue. It is beyond my purpose here to delve into the level of infighting and politics and dirty tricks that characterize the imperial court. The emperor was Arcadius, and his wife uh, was named Eudoxia. She was a powerful and wicked woman. She eventually became John's mortal enemy because of his bold, clear proclamations of biblical morality and his tendency to allude to her as Jezebel and as Herodias, two notoriously powerful, wicked women from the Bible. John had other enemies at court as well. Many people were conspiring against him. When John took up residence in the bishop's palace, uh, it must have been utterly bizarre, for here was a true monk, an ascetic, with staggeringly simple ta tastes, 
who ate little, who was accustomed to sleeping on a bare floor, who hated worldliness with all his heart. Now he's living in the grand palace of the Bishop of Constantinople, surrounded by luxury and power. Well, his first task upon assuming the role as bishop was to reform the life of the clergy. Many of them were living in sin, having spiritual sisters, so-called, unmarried young women living in their homes with them, though they had taken a vow of celibacy. Other clergy had become rich through the church and were living in luxury, like any other powerful men of the court. The church's finances were in horrible shape and the people were not being shepherded spiritually at all. John got busy. He ordered the spiritual sisters, so-called, out of the homes of the clergy. He ordered all priests to lead an austere and chaste life. Church finances were brought under careful scrutiny. The luxuries in the bishop's palace were sold and the money given to the poor. Priests were ordered to open the churches, and not just at times convenient for the rich, but at times that fit the schedules of the working people. He even opened up his own home regularly to the care of, of the poor and needy. Well, these measures gained him both respect by some and hatred by others who loved the comfortable lifestyle. He, is, he called on everyone, rich and poor alike, to live holy lives free from the love of money. Obviously, preaching like that was hard for the rich and powerful to take, as John preached from the pulpit of St. Sophia, the largest church in the world. Eutropius, the high-ranking imperial official who had made John bishop, expected special favors from John. But John just saw him as another man who needed the grace of God in Christ. So Eutropius grew to hate John and wish he had never brought him to that post. John clashed with Eutropius over some refugees who had fled his tyranny. They took refuge in the church, and John would not surrender them to Eutropius' soldiers. Amazingly, once Eutropius came into conflict himself with the emperor Arcadius and fell from power, the mob in the city rejoiced over the fall of their tyrant persecutor and hunted him down to kill him. Eutropius fled their rage and took refuge at St. Sophia in John's church. And when the mob came to get him, John also stood in their way, as he had done with Eutropius' soldiers earlier. John was willing to risk his life to protect his enemy, even against the emperor himself. The crisis passed when Eutropius fled from the church to another place and was captured. John also made a powerful enemy of Eudoxia, the empress. She hated his clear preaching against luxury and worldly power. She felt that every eye in the church must be staring at her as he preached. She tried to buy him off with certain privileges and concessions, but he was not interested. He accepted some of them, didn't take others, but they didn't mean anything to him, and he used them generally just to care for the poor and needy, and he kept preaching the same way. Finally, Eudoxia plotted with some of John's other enemies in the church and had a list of absurd ecclesiastical charges brought against him. A key enemy was Theophilus of Alexandria, who succeeded in finding John guilty and persuading the weak emperor Arcadius to have him banished. The people were enraged. They dearly loved John. His powerful preaching and his constant care for the poor and needy had won their hearts. This power struggle could have resulted in a war, but John did not want that and just agreed to an exile. But the people would not give up so easily. They were ready to revolt against the weak emperor and his wicked wife. That night, when the city was stretched to the breaking point with tension, there was an earthquake, a sign of divine wrath to the people. The empress relented and begged to have John come back from exile. 
He came back, he entered the pulpit to shouts of joyful acclamation by the people. But, as usual, he couldn't keep his mouth from speaking what he felt to be the truth. That was when he likened the empress to Herodias, who sought John the Baptist's death. John was never known for his tact. He wasn't good in that sense with people, interacting with them. Very zealous, he would always say what he thought was true, no matter what the consequences. Eventually, the issues bubbled back up to the surface again, and John chose to take another exile. The people rioted in the streets, and in the disturbance, many buildings were burned. Many of John's followers were arrested by the imperial troops and tortured to death. John was exiled to the remote villages, or remote village of uh, Caucasus in modern-day Turkey, about 170 miles north of Antioch. There he began to write powerful letters and rallied many to his cause, including the Bishop of Rome, that position later to be known as Pope. Uh, his name was Innocent, who ardently advocated for John's reinstatement as Bishop of Constantinople. So, because of all the trouble that John was causing, they removed him even further away in exile to a cold and distant village on the far side of the Black Sea. As he was traveling there, the soldiers guarding him showed little or no concern for the health and condition of a frail elderly man like John. They pushed him hard and eventually his health broke and he became seriously ill. He stopped at a small church by the roadside. He took communion and said farewell to those around him and spoke his final words. In all things, glory to God. Amen. John's struggle with the power of the Eastern Roman Empire would become a recurring theme in the Greek church. The Byzantine Empire that would follow would retain its political power over the church, and many godly leaders would be banished or squelched by that political power. For me, I think at this moment in American history, as I think about uh, the, the questions that we have about politics, I keep thinking like a Baptist. We don't want an official state church. We don't want official state religion. We uh, ardently believe in a separation of church and state. It gives the church the freedom to preach the truth without any uh, official governmental edicts about church business or about doctrine. And you can learn all that from how the imperial church was back in those days. So what are John's characteristics as a man, John Chrysostom? He was clearly zealous, he was pious, he was compassionate to the poor, he was uncompromising, he was fearless in the face of the rich and powerful. Occasionally, as I said, lacking tact, his mouth occasionally got him into trouble. But he was a very gifted preacher of the Word of God whose sermons transformed the lives of those who heard him. As a preacher, one writer put it this way, he was characterized by fullness of scriptural knowledge, intense earnestness, fruitfulness of illustration and application, variation of topics, command of language, elegance and rhythmic flow of style, dramatic vividness, quickness and ingenuity of his transitions, magnetism of sympathy with his hearers, excellent at drawing practical applications from deep scriptures. Chrysostom attracted large audiences, among them many who would ordinarily rather have gone to the theater uh, than hear any ordinary preacher. He held them spellbound right to the end. Sometimes they would erupt in admiration by showering him with applause. And when he rebuked their applause, he would, they would applaud his rebuke. He would tell them, you praise what I have said with applause, but show your approval by obeying God's word. That's the only praise that I seek. 
In his book, On the Priesthood, he devoted two full chapters to preaching and exhorted future preachers with these instructions. Hearers may give you scant credit, assuming the role of spectators sitting in judgment. The people often come not to be instructed, but to be entertained. Most people usually listen to a preacher for pleasure, not for profit, as though they were at a play or a concert. Indeed, despite John's clear love for the people, his expectations were low. He said this, It generally happens that the greater part of the church consists of ignorant people. Scarcely one or two present have acquired real discrimination. Thus the preacher must rid himself of the desire for praise, yet strive for an eloquence that will gain the people's attention. Eloquence is not given by birth, but the preacher must cultivate its force by constant application and exercise. Well, what are some samples of John Chrysostom's preaching? Like I said, you can, that we have 600 of his sermons extant, and you can go online and read some of them. Uh, there's one section on pastoral tenderness. In one sermon on the topic of repentance, he said, Have you sinned? Go into the church and wipe out your sin. As often as you fall down in the marketplace, you pick yourself back up again. So too, as often as you sin, repent of your sin. Do not despair. Even if you sin a second time, then repent a second time. Do not by indifference lose hope entirely of the good things prepared. Imagine hearing your pastor say words like that. Again, he said, even if you are in extreme old age and have sinned, go in and repent. For here there is a physician's office, not a courtroom. The church is not a place where punishment of sin is exacted, but where the forgiveness of sin is granted. Tell your sin to God alone. Before you alone have I sinned, and I have done what is evil in your sight, and your sin will be forgiven you. Concerning pastoral zeal and passion, he said this, My reproach of you today is severe, but I beg you to pardon it. It is just that my soul is wounded. I do not speak in this way out of enmity, but out of care for you. Therefore, I will now strike a gentler tone. I know that your intentions are good and that you realize your mistakes. The realization of the greatness of one's sin is the first step on the way to virtue. You must offer assurance that you will not fall into the same sins again. On luxury, he said this, The gold bit on your horse, the gold circlet on the wrist of your slave, the gilding on your shoes mean that you have been robbing the poor and starving the widow. When you have passed away, each passerby who looks on your mansion will say, how many tears did it take to build that mansion? How many orphans were stripped? How many widows were wronged? How many laborers were deprived of their honest wages? Even death itself will not deliver you from your accusers. On entertainment at lustful theaters, he said this, Seeing Christ lying in the manger, you leave him, that you may go see women on the stage. A spiritual well of fire gushes up out of this table, and you leave this and run down to the theater. You leave the fountain of blood, the awful cup, and go to the fountain of the devil to see a harlot swim and to suffer shipwreck of the soul. On the beggar let down through the roof, he preached in this way. He talked about how Jesus cured without causing the slightest pain, unlike human surgeons of his day who cut and brought major agony in order to bring ultimate healing. Keep in mind that in John's day, surgeries were done with no anesthesia, so people were conscious while surgery was taking, taking place. So patients undergoing these surgeries were often screaming in utter agony in hopes of being cured. But not so with the healings of our Lord. 
Nothing of that kind, said Chrysostom, has to be seen. No application of fire, no plunging in of an instrument, no flowing of blood, no pain, no shrieking of the patient. And the reason of this is the wisdom of the healer, which needs none of these external aids, but is absolutely self-sufficient. For it is enough that he merely utters a command and all distress ceases. And the wonder is not only that he effects the cure with so much ease, but also without pain, causing no trouble to those who are being healed. When I read those words by Chrysostom, it really moved me. I thought about that. All of Jesus' healings were done without any pain. I would add another thing that he didn't mention. They're done without process. Instantaneous. No process, no pain. That's Jesus' healings. But it was Chrysostom's preaching that got me thinking about that. On the varying levels of faith in those that Jesus healed, again in the same sermon on the beggar let down through the roof, he talked about the centurion who sought healing for his servant and did not even need Jesus to come to his home. He said, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus commended that man as having greater faith than anyone he'd met in Israel. But the men who let the other man down through the roof didn't have that level of faith but felt it necessary to get their friend down right in front of Jesus. They made a great effort to dig through the roof and lower him down. It's interesting to me that Jesus didn't stop them and say, hey, it's not necessary. Just stay outside and I'll heal you from there. Jesus let them do what they intended. He accepted the faith at the level that it was at. Then the paralyzed man in John chapter 5 seemed to have no faith at all. He didn't even know who Jesus was. He'd been paralyzed for 38 years, and Jesus healed him even though he had literally no faith. He found him later and said, see you are well again, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. No matter though, said John Chrysostom, all three paralyzed people were healed by Jesus. And so he said this, on the man who exhibited less faith, faith than the one he bestowed no praise, yet he did not deprive him of a cure. No, not even him who displayed no faith at all. But just as physicians, when curing the same disorder, receive from some person a hundred gold pieces, from others half that number, from others less, and actually from others nothing at all, but they'll do the same healing for all of them. Even so, Christ received from the centurion a large and unspeakable degree of faith, but from this man less, and from the other not even an ordinary amount of faith, and yet he healed them all. Well, I think that's marvelous preaching. Wouldn't it be incredible to sit and listen to that kind of of a preaching. Courage in facing his own trial and death, he said this, the waters are raging, the winds are blowing, but I have no fear, for I stand firmly upon a rock. What am I to fear? Is it death? Life to me means Christ, and death is gain. Is it exile? The earth and everything it holds belongs to the Lord. Is it loss of property? I brought nothing into this world, and I'll take nothing out of it. I have only contempt for the world and its ways, and I scorn its honors. Chrysostom said that very soon before he died. So as we look at this incredible man, there's so many things we can learn. One of them is just be faithful to pray for your preachers. Pray that God would give them the kind of eloquence that they need to reach the hearers that God has ordained for them to reach. Pray that they would have passion and that they would preach the truth, as Chrysostom did, by sound exegesis, by making observations from the text, by working at it. A combination of, of light and heat, of biblical truth and passion, that's what we need in our preachers. Pray for it, for your preacher. So as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that your loving Heavenly Father holds your life and all your ways in His hands. Nothing can happen to you apart from His will. 
He orchestrates the rise and fall of mighty empires and the death of sparrows that no one ever sees. He has numbered the very hairs of your head, and all the days ordained for you were written in his book before one of them came to be. And he has gone ahead of you to prepare a specific set of good works for you to walk in, good works that are essential to his eternal kingdom. Just as your brothers and sisters in Christ live for his glory in their day, do the same in yours, by the power of his Spirit, for the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ.